Anthony, how do you like yours? Red. Medium red. Medium red. Hmm. An aristocrat. Going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. Movies. Hell. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nat McGee. Ben, how are you doing, my man? We are we are in it to win it tonight. Oh, I'm my so God, pumped. I'm so pumped. <laughs> oh, my God. Nat, you're never this excited. What the fuck's going on? What the fuck? What the fuck you doing, man? Why are you so fucking excited? We're talking good, fellas. Oh, it feels so good to say that. It feels so good to say that. We're talking good, fellas, man. 1990, the crown jewel. Of Almost undeniably. Oh, this has all been leading up to this. I mean, here's the deal. I was originally interested in doing 1990 on Back to the Movies, where we go back to a certain year of cinema and relive the year. I was excited about 1990 because of so many movies that I had never seen before. I had never seen Misery before. I had never seen... Blue Steel. You had never seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You had never seen yeah. Pretty Woman. It, all those movies that I loved so much. <laughs> but Goodfellas is the exception to the rule. All right? Goodfellas has been in my blood for a very <laughs> long time. It's always been there. And it always will be there. Like, I don't, I don't remember when I first saw it. And I probably won't remember the last time I see it before I die. Before I die, there might be Goodfellas playing in my eyeballs <laughs> it will just always be in my being i think yeah. so this is the outlier this is the one that i was ready for before we even started this is good fellas oh my god here we go here we go tell me about your personal experience with Goodfellas, because i just told you it's it's like in my <laughs> soul yeah, I I can't tell. Do you 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 like Goodfellas, fellas it's like a philosophy it's like a taoist <laughs> regeneration it's turned your blood into spaghetti sauce yeah and it's it's not that i want to have anything to do with goodfellas like the people in goodfellas or anything it's just the filmmaking it's like <laughs> oh this is how you do it like that's what it is. i'm not one of those guys that's got the scarface poster up in my bedroom and like oh fuck yeah they just killed that guy it's more just like oh the, the bespoke cinema <laughs> It's so oh, well done Oh, here. that freeze frame. Oh, that wig <laughs> yeah. pan. Oh, that needle drop. Exactly. Precisely. So The jump cuts, Nat! The jump cuts! <laughs> Listen, we can talk a little bit about how badass it is when this happens, how badass it is when that happens, but, like, it's, it's Marty. It's Marty. Uh, so tell me about your Goodfellas experience. I wouldn't dare to uh compare my passion for goodfellas to yours because i love goodfellas i've loved it for a long time but there's for you it's it's in the pantheon and for me it's it's a great film with a capital g yeah i mean i think for a lot of people a lot of guys be born between a lot what, of good like fellas 1960 and and probably born like today, like this is the movie. I don't, I don't know what it is. I mean, I kind of know what it is. I mean, it was for me too. Goodfellas was literally the first DVD I ever purchased for myself. The two disc special edition. I still own it. I popped it in the DVD player on Sunday night to watch it for this podcast. 
Nice. In fact, because that DVD is now 15 years old, it skips. Oh, no. It jumps around. When it switches layers, it pauses and judders, and I have to, like, rewind to try and make it so I see everything. And I'm sitting down on a Sunday night. We've got laundry going, and uh, Grace just got cast in, in, a per- in a show, so she's getting, like, a call from the stage manager, and then we have to pause to talk about that. It's, like, the worst conceivable viewing experience for this movie. And yet, I fucking loved it. This movie is bulletproof. It doesn't matter. Like, you could be watching it on a, a, a phone in broad daylight with 30 people screaming in your ears and it would still captivate you. Because it's, it's like you said, it's it's bravura filmmaking. It is one of the best directed films of all time. I've watched many, like, YouTube rips from, like, 2008 of scenes from Goodfellas. Like, oh, I'm in the mood for some Goodfellas. And, like, yeah, it's, like, 480p and... It's like out of sync by like a frame. Still works. Still really good. Still better than watching almost anything. So what's incredible is it's just there's no air in the entire movie. There are no bad scenes. There's no mediocre scenes. There's no filler. Every single second is full of energy and life and fascinating performances and camera work and editing and production design and music choices. It's the best possible argument for cinephilia for a yeah. love of not just absorbing the story being told, but the way the story is being told. Would you say that this movie, like we've watched a lot of movies from 1990. That's the whole point of this podcast is that we're only watching from a certain year and we're on like, I think like our 28th or maybe even 30th episode. We're now. in the like, mid twenties right now. Yeah, would would you say that this is like the most modern advanced film that we've watched? Like is it totally ahead of the curve well, on yeah. most other movies that we've watched? I was going to talk about this later. There's a bunch of quotes from Scorsese and from Thelma Schoonmacher and from the DP Michael Ballhaus who are all basically saying like what we were doing felt so radical. It felt like we were pushing the edge. We were making like a 2-hour trailer. No movie had ever been this this high energy and sustained it for that long. And then you watch it today and it feels absolutely modern. The rest of cinema has just sort of caught up with what Scorsese and his collaborators were doing 30 years ago. Yeah, it's it's wild. Because we even did a crime triple feature of three other crime movies from this year. And, like, they all just slogged on. <laughs> like, they just sort of happened. Yeah, and I like. Mean, Compare this to State of Grace, which is like, I right. think, the closest comparison in terms of style and story. And Maybe that like movie, a combo of, of King of New York and State of Grace. It's got like, King of New York's a little bit more avant-garde, so it's got some of what this is doing. But that movie is like so, it's got like, you know, it's got morphine in it. Like, it's it's so sedate. It, it, it has nothing compared to this movie in terms of just the life of the film. Yeah, it's crazy how this movie has informed basically like every gangster movie ever since it came out. <laughs> and a lot of non-gangster movies. I did a little, just for some context, I I did a little list of like the best crime movies of the 80s. Because in the 70s, it was a little different. Obviously, you have The Godfather and you have all the gritty French like, connection. French connection, like very realist. Like it's almost like a documentary in a way. And then you have The Godfather, which is like the godfather of crime movies 
but in the 80s, you had the biggest one by far is Scarface. That's sure. like the 80s crime movie and remains to this day. Then in addition to that, you had Once Upon a Time in America, which is kind of a weird. I always like that movie, but it is weird. It's a weird one. It's not very accessible. You're never going to see like Once Upon a Time in America montage of best moments, which you'll definitely see with fucking Goodfellas. And then The Untouchables, another De Niro, Fish Called Wanda and 48 Hours, kind of like, and Beverly Hills Cop, like the, the comedy sure. 80s crime, and then Dirty Harry movies, sequels to Dirty Harry. So like that's kind of where we're at with um, crime movies at the moment Goodfellas comes out. So I'm just like, man, this must have blown people away. This is so full of life. All those movies I just mentioned are like, they're all good movies, no doubt. But do they bring this to the table do they bring this shit to the table and none of them not even scarface or even the untouchables really take crime seriously or are interested in the mechanics of crimes or the real lives of criminals in any kind of reasonable way yeah they're all kind of ridiculous even scar like scarface is like the king it's like so stupid Um, (laughs) and and untouchables is insane like It's an amazing movie, but it's, like, so over-the-top and ridiculous. And Goodfellas is just such a breath of fresh air. Also, look at De Palma um, just keeping the crime genre alive for a decade. Good on him. Good on him. You know, everyone got so, like, oh, everything's so sad and everything's so grimy. And De Palma's like, no, it's great. It's fun. But Babies uh, are rolling downstairs in strollers. Yeah, it's good stuff. But we got to talk about Martin Scorsese. Should we do some book report cornering? Yeah, let's do some book report cornering on the man himself, who we just saw last week in Dreams. Yeah. And now he's here directing his own big movie, big boy movie. When do you think he filmed his cameo in Dreams relative to shooting Goodfellas and editing Goodfellas? I could see... There were a lot of effects on Dreams. That film could have been in post-production for a while. I bet while he was developing Goodfellas, he filmed his Dreams thing you know i feel like goodfellas like he must have been in the shit the whole time like from start to finish so he couldn't have gone and flown to wherever they filmed that scene in dreams which must have been japan we gotta call him up we should dm his <laughs> hey, daughter on marty Instagram. maybe she could get us the info <laughs> talk to me about playing vincent van gogh the most important achievement of your career Dude, I'm sure he would talk about that for like three hours, like working under Chris Holland. <laughs> yeah, anyway, right. um, here's the deal. Scorsese. What's the There's deal? so much that's already been written about Scorsese and will be written about him. I don't want to make this like a whole big thing. I think we just cover the bullet points for interested sure. listeners who may not have context about Scorsese's career, may only be familiar with him from his recent output and sort of his resurgence of popularity in the 2000s and beyond. That sounds good to me. Okay. NYU graduate, famously, he gets his start uh, working on a few films. There's a a big Woodstock documentary where he was an assistant director and editor. That movie's important to note because on the filming of that movie, he meets John Cassavetes, the famous actor turned director who would become a big friend and mentor of his, really influences his style and his push towards honesty and realism, even within sort of um, a heightened aesthetic. He then uh, gets his first features working for Roger Corman. He makes a film called Boxcar Bertha, which 
the success of those films leads to him making his first crime movie, or sorry, his first gangster movie, Mean Streets. Yep. Uh, really puts him on the map. It also is his first collaboration with Robert De Niro. Mm. Mean Streets leads to Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver leads to Raging Bull. And by the time this, we're entering the 80s, he is looking like one of, if not the most exciting American director of his generation. And while that's happening, we have to mention, especially if we're talking about Goodfellas, Scorsese yes. is a raging cocaine addict during this whole period of time. He uh, Really, really bad. He tells crazy stories about yeah, it. Yeah, he was super self-destructive, and he was talking about how he was like at Cannes Film Festival or whatever, and he was just like doing like 10 interviews in a day, and he just was on quaaludes and alcohol, and he basically says that he was trying to push himself as far as he possibly could because why not? Why not live life to the fullest and become self-destructive and just do lots of drugs because you can? And he, he knew he could do it because he's a remarkable person. But, of course, he ended up in the hospital. He ended up 109 pounds. You know, he really went down hard in the late 70s. And De Niro comes to him and says, I want to make this movie about Jake LaMotta. I want to make Raging Bull, but I can't do it with you in this state. You need to get yourself clean. And he does, I think. And he does. Yeah. Scorsese credits De Niro with effectively saving his life. There you go. And it brings about a pretty marked change. His output in the 80s is a much different filmography than his output in the 70s. And at the time was seen as a a series of disappointments. Although I actually like a lot of these movies, find them really interesting. I mean, I don't know that you could argue that any of them reached the heights of Taxi Driver or Raging Bull or Goodfellas that, you know, sort of bracket them. But you've got films like King of Comedy in 83, After Hours in 85, The Color of Money in 86, and the big one, The Last Temptation of Christ in 88. That was a real passion project for Scorsese. He'd been trying to make it for a long time. He was, felt really strongly about it, but... It was a very controversial movie that led to him getting death threats. It was not successful financially and wasn't hugely successful uh, critically either. Mm. So by the time he reaches the end of the 80s, he's kind of at a, a low point and one of the lowest points he's going to reach in his entire career. I feel like Scorsese, he's got like these different modes. Like he loves his gangster movies, obviously, but then he's got like this Christian streak. He did Absolutely. Silence and Last Temptation. And even, like, Mean Streets has a really strong Catholic element to it. Totally. Well, yeah, and then he's got the drug movies or, like, the crazy, like... And Goodfellas is in there, but, like, um, Wolf of Wall Street and um, Bringing Out the Dead. I feel like that's one that's, sure. like... It's, like, you've stayed up until, like, 5 o'clock in the morning kind of movie. Like, I feel like he's he always operates in, like, these various lanes of, like, his interests. And it's cool to kind of see that over the years. The one that I think is the most interesting is Color of Money. A mm. sequel. The only sequel he's ever done. But to The Hustler. Which right. is, like, right. the artsiest sequel you could ever do. <laughs> but it's so interesting that that was the project he took in the middle of this, of this period. Of this sort yeah. of slightly fallow period. Which, again, I don't really like that terminology because... All four of those films that he made in this decade, I think, are really great. And 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 two of them, uh, uh, Last Temptation and King of Comedy, I think are masterpieces. Well, yeah, and King of Comedy got like a resurgence last year because of Joker. 
Right. People were really re-examining that one. So, what a guy. What a guy. I mean, it's true. He, like, at this point today, he's an absolute legend. He is the most Oscar-nominated director currently living. He has nine nominations for Best Director. Although there was a period of time where he just continually got snubbed when it came to actually winning the award. He's, but he's second only to William Wyler all time, who has 12 nominations. So, like, he is one of the all-time great film directors and has been recognized as such. Yeah. But when Goodfellas comes around, he's at a low point and he knows he needs a hit. He needs something. He needs to reestablish himself as a vital and important voice in cinema. And what does he find? How do you even like logline this movie? You're just kind of like, there's a guy. He's a mobster and he's got a lot of mobster friends and they do mobster things. And then he becomes a drug addict and that's the end. Then he gets arrested. And the thing is, there was a real guy who was a real mobster and had real mobster friends and became a real drug addict. And a journalist named Nicholas Pelegi interviewed him and wrote his story and published it in a book called Wise Guy in 1985. I've not read this. It, I want to read it, though. I feel like it would be awesome, but maybe I just need to watch Goodfellas again. I don't know. <laughs> I think Goodfellas sort of... It like puts the nail in the coffin of the book, which is a very well-regarded book and I'm sure is really fun to read. But how could it measure up to Goodfellas? Yeah, it's impossible. I just, I'll just i just watch Goodfellas again. I think that'll be worth my time more than reading the book. <laughs> There's a really great, possibly apocryphal story, although Pelegi's the one who likes to tell it, where uh, he says that you know he'd written this book and Scorsese cold calls him. And says, uh, I've been waiting for this book my entire life. Wait, that was a bad Scorsese. He says, uh, I've been waiting for this book my entire life. Nice. And Pelegi replies, I've been waiting for this phone call my entire life. And they settle on making the movie. It was it was kind of a, um, an interesting choice because Scorsese had said that he didn't want to make more gangster movies. His 80s, he really pushes away from sort of the crime films that, that had defined him in the 70s. You know, he tried comedy and he had tried, you know, religious films. He was trying to branch out, but perhaps because he felt like he needed something that he was comfortable with, he needed a comeback, he needed a hit, and almost certainly because of how fascinating the story of Henry Hill was, he sets about making this movie. One of the most interesting things about this film, which you'll hear about if you even begin to read about it at all, is that there was a script... There was a book that it was based off of, but basically all of the dialogue in the film is improvised. Yeah, which is amazing. Because, like, we see movies now that are improvised and, like, it's so sloppy. I'm speaking, I'm specifically <laughs> calling out the Judd Apatow movie. I think the difference there is that, like, in a Judd Apatow movie, the improv is just, like, riff. Say as many different jokes as you can so that the editor and the director can find the funniest ones in the editing room. Well, and it's funny, though, because I even feel like Scorsese did that a little bit in Wolf of Wall Street, which didn't hit as hard as this movie. But then you also hear stories about, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is, like, the funniest show on television, and it works really well. So I don't know what it is exactly. I just kind of hate it in, in these new movies where, like, you just see that the actor is just trying to say the most bombastic thing possible. Right. Everything is punched up to a hundred and, and there's no arc. There's no, there's no development. And that's what I think is different here. Cause the improv that was happening here was often happening in rehearsal and it was about 
finding the scene and the mm. characters and not about making each line, you know, the funniest joke that's ever been said. It wasn't about cracking up Video Village. Right, exactly. That's how I always feel. I, like in those, like, in like the Apatow movies, it's, it's funny. Like Anchorman but... 2. Yeah, it's Where just there's just literally obvious... two different versions of the movie because they had so many jokes different versions right. of the same jokes and it, it's all very funny stuff and like if you were there i'm sure it would be kind of amazing because you're in the presence of great funny people but just cutting it together it kind of kills it for me a little bit well let's let me give you an example of, of sort of like how this is working here the funny house scene right really really iconic scene improvised scene based off of a story from joe pesci's own life when he was a waiter at a restaurant but it's not just joe pesci's monologue that's improvised it's also Ray Liotta's responses. Yeah. But we don't think about that because they are just there in service of making Pesci's moment even stronger. Yeah, and that's what exactly. they're doing by improvising this is just making every scene as true and honest and real and effective as they can. For sure. For sure. Um, but it's, it's amazing. And it doesn't work every time, but I'm... Just blown away. Watching this movie again for the 10,000th time, I'm like, oh, man, that line. What the fuck? Like, that line was so good, and I don't even remember it. I've seen this movie a lot. So many fucking amazing lines. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, I think that also is just a credit to how keenly Scorsese observes this culture, which by its nature produces some really fascinating, interesting, funny, and charged dialogue yeah for sure and he knows to just let it play um let's talk about some other technical technicalities here yeah i thought we should cover uh ball house and and schoonmacher because they just their influence on the film is so profound from the very first shot to the very last there's no really like, good point where i felt like we could just stop and talk about them in the body of the film sure so Michael Ballhaus, the, the the DP, German DP, gets his start uh, shooting films for the acclaimed German filmmaker Rainer Werner Fassbinder, um, who is a great filmmaker. I love quite a few of his films. Quite a few of them are in the Criterion Collection, running theme. <laughs> he begins shooting films with Scorsese with After Hours, and then basically shoots all of his movies through The Departed, at which point he, he retires. So he was Scorsese's guy for two and a half, three decades. Nice, nice. And shot a lot of incredible films with him. Beyond Scorsese, his other notable credits include things like Broadcast News, Quiz Show, and Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of the most visually sumptuous movies of all time. So a really talented filmmaker. Dude, I have, I know you have your 15-year-old DVD, but let me tell you, let me tell you about this, <laughs> this Blu-ray disc that got released two years ago. I could see the peach fuzz on young Henry's little brow when he's looking out the window at the very beginning of the movie. This movie looks amazing. So credit to Bauhaus. Is he still alive? Is he dead? I believe he passed away. Okay. RIP, a true master. The peach fuzz really was. So good. You know, oftentimes when a cinematographer works primarily with a single director and that director is a director of the caliber of Scorsese, it's easy to have them be overshadowed by the director. Think about when we were talking about uh, Kurosawa with dreams and his cinematographer, but the contribution that these people make to 
the legacy of of the director can't be overstated. I mean, cinema is first and foremost a visual medium. For sure. And, like, there's also just something about the look of this movie that it covers 30 years, more or less. And each year, and this might be also to do with, like, the set design and the costumes and just the casting in general, but, like, this movie looks real. It looks... And and I know it's all elevated to be a movie, but it really does capture so many different eras. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the way that it looks in general. It looks authentic. You see a lot of so that's the production TV shows, design, but yeah. also the photography. Well, we can li- we can throw the production design in the mix here because it's all technical stuff anyway. But like a lot of TV shows that you see nowadays, it's got this kind of like photo shoot look to it where it's like what did the 50s look like and you can tell that the actors are millennials and i don't know what it is about this movie but like everyone looks authentic and legit and maybe it's just because they knew what it was supposed to look like they but i also feel like it's like in the film stock or something the way they shot this movie it's just so good so crisp and authentic and i feel like you could just black and white any of the photos from the 50s like just put a black and white filter on it and it'd be like oh yeah there's some guys in the 50s hell yeah the other person from the visual aspect we have to talk about at least a little bit is thomas schumacher who oh yes she meets scorsese working on woodstock she was the editor on that film she wins an oscar for it she did not work with him through the 70s or she did some uncredited work with him but she had a a um a pretty stupid conflict with the motion picture editors guild uh, that prevented her from working with Scorsese or working on films in the seventies. And it wouldn't be until the eighties that she'd be able to resume the collaboration with raging bull and then continues to edit the rest of his films. And it's probably the most fruitful pairing of an editor and director in history, right? Like, yeah, especially because of just the way that Scorsese's movies are pretty edit heavy. Like, yeah, the editing kind of calls attention to itself, which isn't always like the best thing, but in his movies, it works he's, really well. He's very inspired by the French new wave. He, he, he's willing to push the envelope in terms of what the editing can do. And, and she's right there with him every step of the way. Yeah. It's, it's a cool collab. Do you think he just hands her all the footage and is like, okay, go cut the movie, whatever. <laughs> no, I bet he is in the editing room every day. And sometimes she just wants to shoot him because he won't shut up. What do you think their relationship is like? It's like they're married well, almost. Here's the thing that blows my mind. Thelma Schumacher marries Michael Powell, the director yeah, I saw that. of The Red Shoes, one of Scorsese's favorite films. Michael Powell uh, from a generation before Scorsese and Schumacher, but a major idol of his. And she was very devoted to him and to his legacy. And Scorsese has become quite devoted to his legacy as well. There's a really interesting dynamic there that would be fascinating to unpack someday. Yeah, we should get some interviews with them before they're gone. Let's let's get to the <laughs> bottom of this whole thing. <laughs> that's a cinematic triangle. It we really, gotta it's, there's out. a whole lot of just so many lives touching each other and touching the art form. Dude, I love it. Um, and maybe touching each other? Mm, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's how they kept this going for so long is that they did not fuck around. 
let's cut that out too. <laughs> um, well, you don't think Martin Scorsese would want to hear us joking about him and Thelma and Michael Powell having some kind of, you know, menage a trois? I don't know, man. I feel like that's a little below all three of them. Um, but whatever. We can keep it in. Why, why not? Let's talk about Goodfellas, the movie. Okay. Which, by the way, on this watch, I noticed the F is capitalized in the title. Goodfellas. I thought that was interesting. It's all one word stylistically, but the F in the logo is capitalized. So wasn't going to be the name of the movie. Oh, really? Okay. The movie was going to be called Wise Guy, like the book, but there was a movie called Wise Guys that came out a few years earlier that 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 prevented them from using it. Well, there you go. But let's just talk about the title for a second. Do you feel like maybe it's just me, but like, do you feel like the title of this movie like? Just looking at it, it kind of, like, visualizes the whole movie a little bit. Like, good fellas, looking at it, you just see, like, those two O's, the two tall L's. It's crazy. Like, I'm just kind of like, good fellas. It's all there. There's 30 years of history there. What are you talking about? I'm serious. It's, like, one of the best titles of a movie ever. It's such are a you good mean- title. I mean, I track because, one, it's a terminology from the life. That's good. Two... Goodfellas is sort of an ironic description of Henry Hill and his companions. But you're talking about the O's. You're talking about the visual elements of the I'm title. I'm talking about the visual like elements of the title. It's good to yes. look at. It's good to look at. Yeah, it's just, it's such a meaty, <laughs> vowel-y, but with just the right amount of consonants. It's just got it all. And it's got so many circles. And there's so many circles in it. There's the, the G circles. There's the O circles. There's the D. There's the E. There's the A. There's so many circles in here. It's a beautiful Matt, title. Were you, were you high when you were looking at the title of the movie? I am just, listen, man, we're talking Goodfellas. We're not talking about like, oh, it's <laughs> ironic that they're Goodfellas. No, 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 no. We're talking like what makes this movie like the greatest movie of all time. And I think that the title, it rolls off the tongue. It looks good. It acts good. And it's you know what? It's a really good title. He dropped the the. It was cleaner. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just perfect. It's perfect. Okay, get us into the movie. Well, I, I mean, we open up with those those iconic flashing titles. Yeah. The uh, with the car, very soul sounds. Yeah, and you're already in the first frame with the car sounds and the things flashing by. You're already establishing like this is gonna be a fast movie. It's gonna be it's gonna be like a car driving by constantly. Just like that's where we're starting a car going 60 miles per hour on the fucking freeway. And then it's sort of oddly the calmest moment in the entire movie is the first scene is just the three guys sitting in the car. And it's like the only scene in the movie that's just like slice of like five seconds of normal life. That's only because we have absolutely no context for these people yet. Well, but even the way that, because, you know, the movie could have just opened with um, him in the 50s. But he, they decide to kind of contextualize it a little bit, like a moment of their life right. in the moment. And I think it's it's sort of horrifying because you don't have the um, Henry Hill voiceover. You don't have any soundtrack. It's sort of showing, like, what this life is without all the glamour and, like, all the fun stuff sure. that Scorsese is going to do in five seconds. It's just, like... What this boils down to is it's fucking three guys in a car 
being like, what is what the fuck is that sound in the trunk? And then like killing someone. And then it's like, boom, the fucking soundtrack comes on. And it's crazy. I want to talk about the needle drop in a second. But I think it's so interesting that we start with this scene of violence. And it's really quite horrific violence. I mean, the violence in this movie is very extreme and was considered so at the time. It's like the opposite of when they, they talk about how they want to uh, you know get the audience on board with a character quickly before the movie gets going. They, it's almost like Scorsese wants to show us how bad these people are so that when we spend the next hour really getting to like them, we, we can remember that, oh, wait, they're also murderers and psychopaths and sociopaths. Well, not only that, but also I think that the slowness of this part really does humanize them a little bit in a way that might not have been possible if he had just opened in the fifties. Like sure. we're starting with just these three schmoes in a car. We don't know who they are other than that. They're kind of freaked out and they got to do something. And they're not that freaked out. I mean, they're pretty freaked out. Like Henry's pretty freaked out when, um, when they open up the trunk and like, they, they don't know what the fuck is in the trunk. Like they, they're humans. That's what I'm trying to say. They're human beings. See, I, I don't know that I agree with this take. I think it's a very interesting take, but I think the entire opening sequence builds up to the introduction of the voiceover and the flashback and exists to contextualize what we see when he's young, because we, you know, they stop the car, they get the guy, they stab him, and then we push in on Henry's face, looking almost sick with with his situation, and we hear him say the iconic line, uh, I always wanted to be a gangster. As far back as, as I, I can, can remember, remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. And and the movie's immediately hitting us with the irony of like what he wants versus what it costs. You know, yeah. what the consequences of it are. And so I think he's he wants to foreground those consequences. I mean, it's really... That's always how I feel when I come out of that sequence. Is like, this is what you want? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's both. I don't think, sure. like, you have to agree that it is one or the other. I think it's a little bit of both. I'm just saying that, like, in a movie that is so fast and crazy, like, this is one moment where it's just three guys sitting in a car and it's pretty silent. And it's, they're like, what the fuck is that? It is one of the most silent moments of the film. <laughs> There's yeah. no music. There's no dialogue. It's just, even if it's only for a second, just them sitting in the car. Yeah, and I think that that kind of helps just make them normal people before it turns into a fucking music video for two and a half hours. That's all I wanted to say, Ben, but you, you're you fucking with me here. You're fucking with my takes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just breaking doing? your balls a little bit, man. I'm just breaking you're your breaking balls. You're breaking my balls. I don't like it. I don't like it one fucking bit. Uh, <laughs> Can we talk about rag switches? Is this the best needle drop of all time? Yeah, I well, to be honest, like it's the best. It's one of like the best five, but all of them are in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are scenes in the movie that the like the the contrast between the music and the scene are more interesting. Uh, the big one that comes to mind is Atlantis during the murder of Billy right. Bats is like such a cool choice. But I just yeah. mean like the literal needle drop, the way the like when the song kicks in. God, yeah. that gets my my adrenaline pumping. It's so good. Yeah, I think um, it's one of the best for sure. I totally agree. I think that the um, there's there's a couple really big needle drops in this movie that kind of delineate where we are in the movie. It's almost like chapters of of like the story, and I'm gonna list them now because why not? Uh, Rags to Riches would be the first one. 
Then Stardust, which is the song that's playing when we see Henry as an adult for the first time. Really good needle drop. Really good song. It's like, sometimes I wonder. And it's the planes and it's so good. Then you got that trumpet or whatever trombone i don't even know what it is but it's like boom and that's uh he's sure the boy i love which is playing when we when it's like june 12th 1970 the night they kill bats that's like a big point where it's changing over to like now things are gonna get darker mm-hmm. then you got layla iconic and then you got jump into the fire for the final day and then of course my way for the credits those I think are like the six big needle drops that are influential for the next. I mean, the eighties one in particular. There's like a lot. There's multiple songs in that sequence, and it keeps. But jumping there's that one. Them. There's that one needle drop where you get the title card. You're That's right. when he when he puts the title cards in the movie, and it's like, oh fuck, here we go. He, he new section. He talked about he's talked about that before about like how he sort of wanted to capture. You know, when you go into these places with their jukeboxes and you have the old timers and they'd be listening to the music from the 50s and 60s. And then you've got the younger generation coming in and they want the, you know, the music from the 70s and 80s. And having this sort of like tour to ground us in time, but also in the shifting attitudes of the characters and the country is just such masterclass shit. Yeah, it's and it's all I I mean... (laughs) We've seen so many movies since then that just want the soundtrack and they get the soundtrack, but it's not working like the soundtrack where it's informing everything. It's just more like, oh, cool song. Great, great, great track here to throw in the background. But like this movie, like the the songs are all very relevant to what's going on, even if it's not anything to do with the lyrics. It's like the tone, like that Atlantis thing. Yeah. Like obviously... Donovan talking about Atlantis has nothing to do with Billy Bats getting the shit kicked out of him, but it's doing so much for that scene. So it's amazing stuff. Let's also talk about the visual style for a second, because the scene ends with the fantastic push in to freeze frame, this really dramatic dolly move ending with a freeze frame that it's just, you know, Scorsese was always a pretty innovative filmmaker, but I feel like in Goodfellas, he's really pulling out all the stops. He's really pushing the technique as far as it can go. Yeah, he's using all those tools. Remember when you talked about uh, Spike Lee, like using all the tools that a filmmaker can have, and like obviously sure, Scorsese's all the paints doing, and the palette, yeah, or yeah, all the colors. I think that's how you said it. Um, obviously Scorsese's doing that because he's he's doing it all. He's got the. I mean, he he goes. He doesn't go like all the way to like different aspect ratios and like different colors, like black and white or whatever. But he's, he goes really far with like the in-camera crazy stuff that you can do, like the dollies and the freeze frames or that's not in camera, but you know what I mean? Things that he can do visually, things that he can do in editing, things that he can do with soundtrack. Like he's really using all the tools. And one thing I wanted to mention about the visual style in this movie is I love that it doesn't, bring in like the new york of it all like it doesn't feel obligated that it's got to place itself in the famous aspects of new york city like there's no like statue of liberty there's no empire state building it's it's very much like deep queens the movie they all live out by the airport and that's sort of the world that you that you get in this movie and it stays there yeah um and like it almost seems like it's just a world of like shitty bars and like 
glitzy clubs and like back it's rooms. such a far cry from like the the manhattan uh, of of like king of new york right and and state of grace too like that was also in manhattan so i thought that was pretty awesome so all right jesus christ where do we even begin it's the i, I the 50s it's only like 18 minutes of the movie but it feels like a lifetime like young henry growing up becoming a little mob a little baby mobster <laughs> so much happens i think in this moment of the film especially like it kind of once he grows up it kind of gets a little more episodic where like we're gonna focus like five minutes on this five minutes on that but in this section it's like every 30 seconds there's a new yeah. thing happening the film is really interesting structurally because it's it's it is sort of broken up into episodes the different chapters of of Henry Hill's life, the different capers he was a part of, or the different things that were happening in his personal life at the time. And sometimes they bleed over into each other, but they don't really ever have that much to do with each other. You know, like the first Idlewild heist has basically nothing to do with the capture of in the eighties. Like those, those sequences are almost entirely unrelated by the time we get to them. There's no plot that connects them all the way. Through. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause it's like looking at his life in the big scheme of things, basically. And, be, and, and each of those episodes, like, feels very observational. There might be a little plot within it or not. But this is the one that has the biggest, like, arc, where we go from, like, Henry wanting to be a gangster to working towards his goal to facing setbacks to achieving his goal. Like, it's classic 3X structure all within this one first episode. But, like, they never choose to focus in on, like, that one story moment. It's never, like... Oh Henry, I need you to go blow up this garage, and then you'll be sure. a made guy. Or oh Henry got busted, like is he gonna make it out and not rat on anybody? Like Scorsese just keeps it, like it, it's the closest to like a book I've ever seen a movie where like it can just cover as much as it wants in a, a, a very short period of time, but like it's covering what seems to be like three or four years. Mm-hmm. of of someone's life and it's able to just like new paragraph it's six months later let me tell you for like three seconds what happened then and then oh new paragraph i've moved temporally like most movies feel like oh we gotta like we gotta have this little story arc where he blows up the cars and now they love him kind of thing but this yes, is just like absolutely he's blow he's blown up the cars like he's everything is covered like just seeing that one scene and with his voiceover you know exactly what happened and it's amazing in that regard a couple of things i want to talk about in this sequence first the way scorsese depicts violence in this movie it is very abrupt and very frightening the first instance is when henry's father beats him mm. and, it, and it, it, it really comes out of nowhere and partly because the music and the voiceover don't like clue you in he doesn't he doesn't set it up he doesn't build the tension before it he just lets it happen in all of its horror and uh it's really effective for that yeah i mean you can kind of see on his face that it's coming yeah. he's, he's he's fucking with it that actor's great the the, de- the irish father he's like you have a good time at school <laughs> and you're kind of like oh shit here we go but you're right in that like it, life is just kind of going on in terms of the movie itself like it's not slowing down at all for what would in almost any other movie be like a horrifying scene. Um, 
in this movie. It's just like, and Henry even says it right after it happens. He's just kind of like, the way I saw it, everyone takes a fucking beating every once in a while. Like, it's kind of casual, but also horrifying at the same time. Should we talk about some of the the characters and some of the cast that get introduced in the sequence? We've got Polly, played by Paul Servino. Yeah. God, he's so good in this movie. Yeah. Kind of understated i feel like he's sort of the fourth man because you know goodfellas you're always thinking about uh leota de niro and pesci mm-hmm. but Polly's a pretty strong part of this movie too and i feel like he kind of gives it that warmth he's not vicious in the same way that jimmy and tommy are and he's not ratty like henry is he's like he's sort of like the traditional like <laughs> oh a good a platonic man. ideal of a gangster <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which is so funny because I I did a little research and like the real Polly was of course a piece of shit and murderer. Um, but in this reality of the movie, he's a he's a pretty decent dude. He's a nice guy. He seems fair. He seems just. He seems like a good leader. <laughs> Dude, where was that? What you were talking in the Segal episode about how you had a good psychopath detector, and here you are calling Polly good That's dude. True. And in the sequence, we get this incredible, or I guess it's the next sequence. We get the incredible scene where they uh, uh, um, take over the, the the club and they ruin this guy's life. And Polly is like <laughs> the agent of that, except he just gets to sort of act like he isn't. Cause he's like, nah, what do you want from me? Oh, I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> it's true though, but he's not, he's not like obviously trying to dom anyone. So I fall for it immediately. I told you in Manhattan or in Metropolitan, as long as they're charming and charismatic, you're like, I'll totally fall for You're like for Grace. That. We're watching this movie. Spoiler alert. Going way, getting way ahead here. When Jimmy, Robert De Niro, finds out that Tommy has been killed and he starts crying, she went, aww. <laughs> and I was That's like, sad. Is this what are you you're fucking, just hoping? This is a, a, a sociopath crying over the death of a psychopath. At the hands. He still has feelings, all Ben. The criminals. He still has feelings. You're still allowed to feel bad for him. He's going through emotions. And it's because that De Niro performance so good. Let's talk about De Niro. Oh, man. De Niro. My favorite in this movie by far. I think Jimmy's the most interesting character in this movie. He, um, it's, They're all so good. So I'm just going to say that over and over. But he's so good. The thing about Jimmy is he's a slow burn. Yeah, exactly. Because early in the movie, he do, we don't really get a sense of who he is. He's just another one of the gangsters. And if it wasn't Robert De Niro playing him, we probably wouldn't even mark that he's going to be a really major character. Right. But by the time you get to the scene at the very end with him and, and, and Karen, when he's offering Karen the coats and it's so fucking scary, it, you, it all pays off. Like De Niro's just doing such good work here. And so much of it is happening in really subtle ways. Yeah, it is weird, too, because it makes you question everything that came before it. Like, the fact that he's such a fucking psycho. Like, I think there's a really key scene in the 50s section where he is with young Henry. And he's, he's like, looking him right in the eyes. And he's like, there's two rules. Never rat on your friends and don't tell the cops anything. And, like, I don't know. Was he always a murderous psycho? And just waiting for shit to go down. I mean, like when, when we're introduced Jimmy, to him, really? we, we are told that we're told that he's a killer and a thief, and that he loves stealing. Yeah, but they he never, doesn't just it's do funny, it to make money; that he enjoys it. It's so funny that you say that because I totally forgot about that. That they say like he's a, he whacked somebody when he was like fourteen years old or whatever. And like, what if Scorsese had done that thing that he does in so many of his other movies, where like 
he cuts really quick to Jimmy shooting someone in the face. Like, he doesn't do that in this movie. Like, he lets you kind of fall into Jimmy's spell a little bit. He wants you to be with Henry and see these people the way Henry does. Right. And the beginning where they are, you know, De Niro's just passing out money and being really charming. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, he could have easily done the thing that he does in Departed where he just shows fucking Nicholson shooting a woman in the face like the minute after you introduce him. But he doesn't do that here. And I think that's it's kind of genius because, Jimmy, you're, you're totally right. He sneaks up on you and he's a monster by the end. But still a human as well because, like you said, Grace was sad for him when he lost his buddy. You know? Let's just quickly mention the history that Scorsese and De Niro have together because they effectively make each other careers Mm. de niro gets his start working with brian de palma but his breakout is mean streets right and mean streets leads to taxi driver one of the most exciting performances of the entire decade well and we i know we're talking about him and scorsese but like we gotta mention that he like was in the godfather like he gets godfather 2 thanks to mean streets and taxi driver which has a i think a lot to do with this movie like these those two movies are very intertwined um, but we'll talk about that later. He continues working with Scorsese in the seventies. He's got New York, New York in 77, which is kind of a miss for both of them. One of my least favorite Scorsese films. It just doesn't work very well. Raging Bull in 80, one of the most incredible films and performances of all time. King of New York in 83, but then they take a break. You know, they had five films together in 10 years, but then they don't really do any films again until this one. So it's mm. sort of a reunion for him. And then they did a couple more after. So, and then they had the Irishman. It's a crazy relationship. Do you think him, Thelma, and Rob, Bobby just all hang out? Uh, I, I, what you read all these stories about the set, right? And like Ray Liotta talks about how intimidating De Niro was and how like he never felt like he ever broke through De Niro. They were never friends. And he mm. talked about like, they go into a take and De Niro would do something fucking insane and he'd be so crazy and so intense and Ray would be terrified in real life that like things had gone too far. And then Scorsese would say cut and De Niro and Scorsese would go off to the side and they'd start joking together. Right. And like, <laughs> they'd like say something to each other that Ray couldn't hear and they'd start laughing. Oh my God. And so I, I'm sure that they are friends beyond just coworkers, but they both take their work so seriously that it never, you never, get a sense of it that's a funny way of putting it that they're co-workers like <laughs> what they like go to the morning meeting together and like email like <laughs> they bump into each other at the ASAP. water cooler and make small talk yeah what are you kidding me they're like uh, it's so weird to even think about that um <laughs> that's what we got to do ben we got to make this movie of what their relationship is like let's get them in a therapy session and really unpack what it's like to be friends with them all right. One other thing I want to talk about, and and I think we can tie this into something you've got mentioned here in the notes as well. Throughout the film, the movie does this really interesting thing where it highlights Henry's empathy. Mm. We see it first when the uh, guy walks up to the pizzeria bleeding and he uses all the towels to try and staunch the bleeding until the ambulance can come. Even though, um, not Polly, what's Polly's brother's name? Tootie. Tootie. You know, Tootie's like, oh, you're a real asshole. You Why are you giving away all fucking my... aprons on that guy. <laughs> and we see this multiple times throughout the film that Henry is sort of slightly apart from this. And part of that is, I think, the fact that this story is told by the actual Henry Hill, who had 
a very good reason to want to make himself seem like a better person. Yeah. But two, it really does create a, a tragic arc to this movie where Henry is has a better nature that he is continually pushing down and ignoring and and killing so that he can live this life of perceived respect and material wealth and uh, decadence and debauchery. To his credit, he is kind of right. He he like talks about how he doesn't have to wait in line at the grocery store and he just can just leave his car out. Like he does get rewarded for his behavior in the world that he lives in. Right, but that reward is 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 a lie because it doesn't it never accounts for the cost. Oh yeah, I mean he pays for it in the end, but to him But not just the cost to him, the cost to others. And yeah, saying but he that never, you he doesn't don't, care about that at all. Right, but but what we see is he does a little bit. A little bit. And he has to constantly strangle that part of him so that But he even can by the end of the it. movie, even by the very last frame of the movie, yeah, sure, he he like cared a little bit about other people but his big regret is that he has to live the rest of his life like a schnook it's not all the people that he hurt he's right. like now i'm a fucking right. loser he's become so sick and corrupted by that point but yeah. why do you think henry is the one who becomes addicted to drugs uh because he's fucking weak Because he's the one who's got pain that he's got to medicate i guess so I feel like they all do in some... They probably all have a lot of pain that they have to medicate in some nah, way. Nah, nah. Jimmy and Tommy are dead inside. <laughs> they got nothing. Well, Jimmy is dead inside, and Tommy has nothing but Anger. Rage. Right, rage and anger. It's true. Good points, good points. Did you want to talk about Chris Saron at all? I did, yeah. I wanted to quickly mention the undersung hero of Goodfellas, other than Polly. Other than every amazing person who does like a thankless role. Yeah. Chris Cerrone, he plays young Henry and he's fucking great. I mean, I know that he never has to actually like do a scene where he has to like actually act as though he's a real person. Like he's kind of just like the music video Henry. (laughs) Um, But I still think he does. He does a great job at just embodying like youthful excitement for all the fun shit he gets to do like he just has he seems like he has such joy on his face this whole sequence and it really sells you on the fact that like henry loves this fucking lifestyle and unfortunately chris cerrone did not make it as an actor past goodfellas he tried but unfortunately there were other up-and-comers like christian bale and leo dicaprio who kind of stole his thunder on a lot of roles that he may have gotten and in the end, he just kind of became a, a bartender. So what you're saying is that we could have had, you know, all the Scorsese-Leo collaborations, but with an adult Chris Cerrone, if not for Leo? Well, I actually have something for later, but might as well throw it out here now since we're talking about Leo. I was imagining, like, Leo in Goodfellas, because he's kind of the missing element. Like, Leo as Henry? Do we see it? Do we see young Leo as young Henry? At the time period. I could get could on board with that. It. You can't recast Ray. Ray Liotta is so good in this movie. I know, but I'm just saying if Leo had been the right age, like I feel like this would have been this could have been his role. And then it, you'd have like the ultimate Scorsese with that would De Niro, be Pesci, Leo, who's kind of like his second De Niro. I'm just saying, thought experiment. But one thing I learned about Chris Aron that was kind of crazy is that he got the shit kicked out of him because he was in Goodfellas. He was thought of as like the the kid to beat up in his neighborhood because he was famous 
any tough guy in the neighborhood would go find Chris Cerrone and kick the shit out of him. So he got into like two here's the two hundred fights when he was don't a kid. Don't let your kid be in a movie. <laughs> if you live in a rough neighborhood, which I think he did, or even if you don't, how many fucking lives has it destroyed? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, crazy guy, Chris Cerrone. Thank you for being in this movie. Love you. Let's move to the sixties. The next section of the movie when Henry grows yeah, we up. We got some. Some sharp suits, Stardust playing on the jukebox. Um, let's talk about Henry. Uh, Ray Liotto, we, we get a great pan up to him from his shoes at the airport. And he's looking fierce. What an introduction. He's looking fierce. What's his deal? What's his background? Well, so the big credit that you got to address leading into Goodfellas is something wild. The Jonathan Demi film that we've mentioned before because it was a major influence on Miami Blues. Mm. In that movie... He plays uh, um, a ex-con who uh, was was a, was an old boyfriend of of sort of the main female character, and is is kind of a romantic foil for uh, the male lead. And it is a really incredible performance, like like a star-making performance. He's it's it's by far the best role in the film because he gets to be so intense and crazy, and he's sort of playing something like Tommy in this movie, okay, but in a romantic comedy instead. And Scorsese sees him in that and says, that's my Henry Hill right there. There you go. But producer Erwin Winkler says, no, he's not famous enough. He's got no credits under, you know, he's been in one movie. By the time this comes out, he'd also been in Field of Dreams as Shoeless Joe Jackson. But when they were casting him, hadn't even done that or, or that hadn't come out yet. And so eventually Ray accosted uh, Winkler at a restaurant. Like, they ran into each other. And he's like, I know you don't want me for the role, but I want the fucking role. Give me the role. And and, and Winkler's like, oh, I saw the intensity in him. <laughs> That's a great life lesson. If you want something, you got to tell people you want it. You got to ask for it. Otherwise, you'll never get it, and they'll replace you with Tom Cruise. So, And, you know, Ray Liotta has just never been able to reach the heights of this film again. He made some bad choices for the roles that he appeared in, in in the rest of the 90s and into the 2000s. And he had a little bit of a resurgence, I think, in, in the in the 2000s, but but it has died down again at this point. Uh, but I think it's a real shame because he is one wonderful in this movie, playing, I think, a really tricky character who could easily wind up being completely unlikable or feeling like a shallow attempt to, to get us to sympathize with him. He never shies away from the ugliness of Henry. And yet he is always compelling and always sympathetic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, here's the thing though, that I, I mentioned it already, but like Goodfellas doesn't, it has very few scenes like, like, like three page scenes where they talk. I think really, it's just a couple conversations between like Henry and his wife. There's a couple like conversation scenes, but so much of it is just moving, moving all over the place and like spanning months in this, in the span of like three cuts. So it's like a weird movie to think about with like, Oh, he's great in this movie. Cause it's the way that this movie just works is so different than most movies. It's true, but he is an element of how it's working because he's the voiceover. Totally. Which is one of the things that yeah. propel that creates the 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 the, the uh, uh, you know velocity that keeps us moving. Yeah, it's just funny that like the whole movie builds as opposed to like specific scenes building in a way. Like I'm just thinking back to like 
you know, blocking a scene and like like that, for example, like that long epic scene in um, broadcast news that we we filmed one time mm-hmm. as an exercise in film school where it's like, how does this scene work? Like, what's the character thinking from from the beginning of the scene to the middle of the scene to the end of the scene? I feel like Goodfellas like doesn't fucking have that. It's just like all happening all at once. And it's crazy. Listen, Carbone, in this <laughs> scene, you are dead hanging in a refrigerator truck. That's I mean, where even you start that's like, at the start of the scene, and that's where you end at the end of the scene. That's like an insane example, but I'm just thinking about like, okay, in this one shot that lasts like all of 10 seconds in the movie, like we have 30 people and five of them are moving like a a rack for suits and like another, tw- like it's just, it's unreal. The It's so epic in scope and like the, the whole movie kind of works towards that and it's just funny to think about like oh maybe ray liotta could have been this like great leading man but i'm almost kind of like maybe the movie is like helping him in a way that like makes (laughs) him seem like he's an even better actor than he could have been i don't know i that's what i'm getting he's got that face which is i think one of his great assets but also probably one of the uh, things that made it hardest for him after this movie yeah that 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 drawn pockmarked face yeah that you just can't put in every movie for sure i i, I don't know if i could see him like doing a traditional like i'm the the leading guy i don't know he's great in marriage story so check that out anyway we <laughs> Jesus, we knew this was going to be an epic one, but we got we got to move along. A <laughs> We've been little going for bit. an hour. We haven't even gotten to the funny house scene. Yeah, uh, let's talk about Pesci. Oh man, Pesci's the uh, he's the traditional MVP of this movie. I mean, it it's just he has like the showiest performance of the three leads. Yeah, and when you can do a role like that with integrity, it's always going to be the standout. Yeah. For sure. This scene is such a great example of that because it's such an iconic scene, mostly because of his performance. But Pesci's a really interesting person. We should track his career a little bit. He uh, starts his working life as a barber, uh, but then he tries to break into the music business by playing guitar and singing. Oh, wow. And he has a little bit of success with that. And uh, that leads to a comedy duo that he starts with an actor named Frank Vincent, who plays Billy Bats in this movie. Mm. The two of them would star in two-man shows... And that led to them being cast together in a low-budget crime thriller called The Death Collector in 76, which leads directly into Raging Bull. Scorsese and De Niro see him in The Death Collector, and that's why he gets cast as De Niro's brother in Raging wow. Bull. Wow, and that's an amazing role. I actually like that role way more than I like um, Tommy, to be honest. It's a much subtler and more complex role than Tommy. Yeah, he's great. He He's fucking memorable and fucking crazy and you know he's kind of the uh the id of the whole thing he's the violent narcissistic rage of the whole movie this scene is so incredible for establishing his character because it is one of the few moments that the movie stops for a second to just focus in on one dynamic and one exchange and 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 one atom that will be the synecdoche for the entire relationship that these people have yeah a hugely underrated part of this scene for me is Ray Liotta's laughter is oh the God. absolutely insane manic levels of hilarity that they are experiencing in their little bubble world. Well, that last one before it cuts to the next scene where he's just like, he's basically just screaming and his <laughs> eyes so are insane. bulging out of his head. <laughs> like it's great. I totally agree. Great reaction to everything. It, it doing. somehow makes what Tommy did even more 
ugly and gross mm. that like the good result is this disgusting well and it's also you always forget that like immediately after tommy like breaks it like when he's like i was just fucking with you then he also kicks the shit out of a guy <laughs> like he like slams a glass on a guy's head and also like pushes a waiter around like there's so much even in this like non-violent scene there's so much violence you always think just about the two guys at the table, but then you forget about the trail of fucking bodies and blood that the ho- followed the, the whole thing. The manager and then the waiter who's also <laughs> yeah. getting harassed. Yeah. I um, the, so the other crazy. sequence I want to talk about from this this episode of the film is when we explain the racket and we see the story of the bamboo lounge. Which mm. uh I I think again what the one of the movie's greatest tools is irony. Because it's being told so specifically from Henry's viewpoint with his monologue over everything, Scorsese does a great job of usually supporting but occasionally contrasting what he says to really powerful effect. And this is one of the great examples of that, where Henry is going on about like how easy the racket is and how great a plan it was. And on screen, we are watching these people dismantle a man's life. Cause can you explain something to me? I was trying to follow this when I watched the movie. If Tommy owed that guy's money, why does Tommy get to get a stake in the club? He just why would the guy give him a piece of his club? Tommy didn't get a stake. Polly got a stake. So why did Paul, if Tommy owed money, why does Polly get a stake in the in the club? That's what I don't understand. Because if Polly's an owner, then nobody's gonna push around the ownership. Because he could go say to Polly, oh, Tommy's giving me a hard time and Polly's the boss. So Tommy's not going to cause trouble in Polly's restaurant. But I'm, I'm just wondering, like, did he ever get paid his $7,000? No. He was, his life, they, that entire thing was Tommy's an asshole. Tommy is a raging psychopath who just likes to fuck with people. And because of that, Polly sees an opportunity to deploy another racket and he gets Henry to convince the guy to give him a stake in the business, which he can then leverage to overextend his credit and use it as a front for illegal activity and then commit insurance fraud. I guess I just don't like, understand what the, the benefit the owner is of the, the restaurant. I, I could see if there is no benefit. I could see if he is, owed money to Polly, but if Polly, if Tommy owes money to him, I don't understand why he gets, he has to give Polly a stake. Here's his perspective. He, gets kicked around by Tommy. He the old, he can't go to the police because he runs a mob lounge. Like, what the fuck is he going to do? Paul, Tommy will kill him. The only person he can go to is Polly. Polly has his buddy Henry tell him, hey, you know, why don't you have him offer me a piece of the club? That'll be like his leverage to get me to be involved. And so the restaurant guy's like, this is fine. If I've got Polly owning my club, that means nobody can push me around anymore because Polly owns part of the club. Mm. And everything will go back to the way it was before. He doesn't see that it's a trap. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, it's it was always confusing to me. Still is to be honest. But that's kind of the beauty of of all these mob movies that you can kind of like go back to them again and again and like try to figure out the schemes cuz usually they're not so cut and dry. Like there's like weird layers to the whole thing. So right. especially something like the Sopranos, you can go back to the Sopranos and like never understand what the fuck is going on, but it's all just about the atmosphere and the, and the fun. What's interesting about this bamboo lounge scene is that the specifics of the scheme don't really matter 
And Henry doesn't really tell them to us, but you can see them visually and sort of put them together in context. Right. Because there is something specific happening, but it's not important to Henry, so it's not communicated clearly to us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that guy's shit gets burned down. Very sad. He What does he say? He's like, it's a fucking shame. Yes. And then, they, and then as they are arguing about taking out Karen to go on a date, the place is up in flames and they drive away and it's great. And that leads us into our next sequence, which is all about Karen. Yes. Lorraine Bracco. My MVP for this film. Oh yeah. She's really great. She brings another, another, just when you think you're, you've had the meal, she's like bringing a whole other course. <laughs> she's like, no, that was just an appetizer. Yeah. Cause you're like, Oh shit, this is, we're going to get the female perspective too. Oh my this God. isn't just about criminals going out and committing crime. This is about what they bring home to their families and how they destroy everyone's life, not just the people that they commit crimes on. Yeah, and she she brings it. She's worthy yeah. of uh, you know the starring role here. This is a major breakout for her. She doesn't have a lot of credits before this, and unfortunately she doesn't have a lot after either. I, mean, I think her next most iconic role is her recurring role in The Sopranos as the therapist. Yeah, which is huge. Um, I mean, yeah. But yeah, no, not a lot of movies. She's the only other character with voiceover in the movie. What's what's up with that? I think that it's just Scorsese like throwing out the rules again. He's just playing with what he can do because it's her time of the movie. Like you said, like this is her section. And why not have her do the voiceover? Like he can do whatever the fuck he wants. It's his movie and it's great. Give her the mic. And then, like, he even goes crazy with this in um, in Casino because he's got uh, Pesci doing the voiceover, and then he, he literally gets whacked in the middle of the voiceover. So I think that Scorsese just doesn't feel like he has to be tied down to, like, oh, he's narrating the story, so whatever. I mean, in books, you get it all the time. You get multiple narrators that are changing throughout the course of the book. So I think it's just, like, it suited the moment. That she gets to talk. Well, the I mean, the effect of it is that she is the second most dimensional character in the movie. Jimmy and yeah. Tommy and Polly are these, you know, these golems, these these evil forces that we don't really get to understand. Although we certainly get to 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 see enough of them that, that they are conceivable as existing. But Karen has an entire interior life and. Uh, her voiceover really allows us to feel the the tragedy of her corruption. Yeah, for sure. And that's not giving her enough credit because she's an absolute she's absolutely an agent of her own corruption. But uh, I want to talk about that more at the end when we when we get towards the end of the movie. So this whole section of the movie it just basically devotes itself to their romance. There's the scene where she yells at him because he stood her up there's the scene where they're so like good i love that scene at the they're at the yacht club or whatever and that douchebag shows up and is like kind of making eyes at her like the movie really does like kind of stop just to be like okay they are gonna fall in love and get married while also maintaining like henry's crazy lifestyle where you're never fully out of the whole mob thing but it's cool that they really take the time to like establish their love and relationship should we just talk about the Copa Cabana scene? Yeah, I mean that's that is the scene that people talk about when they talk Goodfellas. I think that that is 
here's the thing it's a great scene for viscerally capturing the appeal of the gangster lifestyle i think it's ultimately not that interesting of a scene in the context of the movie though because that isn't the part of the lifestyle that appeals to henry it's the part that he's showing off to appeal to karen yeah that's true but i mean he also talks about how he likes to just be like the top guy and like that definitely does make it seem like he's the top guy right yeah i mean there's definitely that 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 uh status element to it that he enjoys and the scene is yeah. is so is so good at drawing out details to really place you in the mindset of these characters and in their time and in their place and in their emotional states but i just think it's like ultimately less consequential than a lot of the other scenes in this movie take for instance Karen's reaction to the pistol whipping scene that happens shortly afterwards tells us a lot more about her character and why she falls for Leota than this scene does. Yeah, I suppose. But it's undeniable that this scene is like iconic to millions of people. I mean, it's incredible. For some reason, I want to do that. For some reason, this scene is like in the top. And obviously there's the whole stunt element of the fact that it's this one long shot where it's the first frame is him handing his keys over to the valet and it ends with the comedian on stage. And that's pretty crazy just because of the fact that you went on this whole journey. I don't know. I think it's undeniable. I kind of agree with you that like if you're looking at this movie, like it's not the most impressive thing. For me, one of the more impressive moments is another long tracking shot but it's earlier when he's introducing all the guys names and it's timed so perfectly with the vo and like it's also just kind of whipping around to like different faces which i feel like is more challenging than just following people through a space it's like the fact that it's you're it's you moving through this club and like seeing all these different people's faces and the way it's timed perfectly with the vo like, but this Copacabana thing is just cool because I think what makes it so timeless and makes people love it is just, it's sort of like a form of time travel. Like, yeah, absolutely. You're going on like a Google street view of a Copacabana in 1965 or whatever. Like, it's so cool. I, I mean, I'm definitely being contrarian here. The fantasy of it is, is intoxicating. I absolutely want to go back to that time and place and walk through the back entrance of the Copacabana and be given a table right down front. It's like a, uh, it's like a real life version of like a Lego set, like frozen <laughs> in a perfect moment where it's like, Oh, God, look at all these little where's things. Where's the Goodfellas Lego crossover? Oh my God. I would buy it immediately. I mean, they've done stuff. They've done like Seinfeld and friends. So maybe yeah. they can get to Goodfellas, but yeah, there's, it's amazing just because of the way that it's like a cross section. And there's so many little details, and it's so cool. Oh, cross-section's a good word. Fun fact, when they walk through the kitchen, they just do a loop and walk back into the same hallway. So theoretically, they could have been in that ballroom in, like, five seconds, but I I actually watched it again when I read this. It bugs me every time, Nat. It bugs me every time. Wait, seriously? It bugs you every time? I had to, like, track it myself. I had to manually track it. The problem with it is you see just a little bit of the red hallway as they start to exit the kitchen. Oh, man. And and that's what clued me in. And every single time I'm like, why the fuck did you just walk around the kitchen? You need to do more drugs, Ben. You need to just chill the <laughs> fuck out, my man. Because if that's what's bugging you when you watch the Copacabana scene, you're fucked in the head. 
and you need some some downers. All right, let's just blow through two other scenes in this sequence. We already mentioned it, the pistol whipping scene. I just wanted to say, during production, Ray Liotta's mother was diagnosed and then died of cancer. Oh, man. And he talks a lot about how he would channel the anger uh, over, over her diagnosis into some of this work. And this is one of the few scenes where we get to see Henry completely unleashed. Yeah. Because usually he isn't the angry one. And he's really frightening in this scene. Totally. The look on his face when he turns around is, uh, it's, it's terrifying. How did they film that? That's what I want to know. It, that's like some really good stage punching, <laughs> stage pistol whipping. It looks real. Does he get bloodier as he keeps hitting him? <laughs> I mean, they do some stuff with like sprays and... I don't know, man. It's like visceral. That is burned into it's, my brain for really the rest visceral. of my life. It just looks... It looks so painful. A funny story about and crunchy. how they do scenes like that. The the stuntman who who sat in for, for Billy Bats when, when uh, De Niro and Pesci are stabbing and kicking him in the bar talked about how, like, you know, he'd be wearing a pad and he'd be like, okay, Robert, this is where the pad is. I need you to kick here. And, and De Niro would be like, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. And then when it would come time to do the actual take, like, he'd only hit the pad half the time because he was so, like, focused and in the moment that, like, he wasn't aiming for a pad. He was trying to kick the guy. So, yeah, mm. like, people get hurt. That People, that shit, uh, uh, you know, a dedicated performer can take it too far. I'm sure. I also just wanted to mention the wives scene, which is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. When she meets the wives. When the she meets time. the wives and we pan across them and, and it, her observations of their life and her sense of superiority which ultimately sort of becomes one of her downfalls. Right, 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 right. Well, there's something to be said about the whole cultural element to this movie, like the different ethnic subgroups and how they kind of relate to each other. And like, there's a scene, I think a little bit later on where um, they're out with their girlfriends and one of the girls mentions Sammy Davis Jr. And Pesci like gets all racist all of a sudden and like becomes a total asshole. But in this world, it's cool to be Italian. It's cool to be Irish. It's cool to be Jewish, but there's like this whole other subset to that. And like, I thought something really funny was that when um, Henry picks up Karen for the first time, there's like this slight little pan down to his crucifix that he's wearing. And she's like noticing it for the first time. And she makes him hide it. Yeah, exactly. But like the, even just the little pan of it, like to show like, oh, people are very aware of this. I don't know. There's just this whole cool cultural subtext to the movie that you can look at it with that I think is awesome. That being said, I don't know if Lorraine Bracco is the most convincing Jew. I didn't a hundred percent buy it. She's super Italian. So I don't know. <laughs> she grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, which she used to convince okay. Scorsese that, that she could play the part. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Cause she's when you watch Sopranos, true. she's so fucking Italian. And I was kind of like, oh, man, I don't would this movie have been different if she was like more Jewish? I don't know. But she still kills it. I'm just I'm just pointing it out. All right. Let's get to the next sequence, which is the fulcrum of the movie. It's where everything changes. Wow. Oh, my boy loves boy. I love come along when that needle drops. Right. 1970. Yeah. OK, here we go. Billy Bats. Billy Bats. This is a scene. Maybe my theory is wrong. Maybe there are scenes in this movie. I don't know. I just always think of it as a music video, but there are, this is a real deal scene. Fucking Billy Bats comes home from the can and they're in a bar 
and it's I guess it's like the after party from his original party. There's like yeah, it's the welcome everywhere. home party. Important to note this is this is a bar that Ray Liotta's character that Henry Hill owns, although that's never really made clear. But like it's weird. It's like it's a party scene, but it's like there's no one at the party. You know, it's like the end of the night already. I think you're right. I think the party is over. Right. And like, that's when we start. Yeah. That's the, that's the world these guys operate in. They like stay till after everyone's left and then get into fights. The tension is real. The tension is real. Billy is taking some swings. It's a really great scene, obviously. And I think a lot of that is owed to the chemistry that Frank Vincent and Joe Pesci have from their years as a comedy duo. That is a cool fact that 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 was their background. They like clearly have history, and here they're kind of using it against <laughs> each other. It's amazing. And then yeah, the the murder itself is really fucking brutal. And then we we spend a long period of time getting rid of the, the body. There's a road trip. We stop by Tommy's house. We get Catherine Scorsese, Martin Scorsese's mom as Tommy's mom. Yeah, and I wrote something down while watching this that like the three guys reaction while at the dinner table is sort of like encapsulating of their attitudes towards (laughs) life. Tommy is like totally nonchalant. Like he really doesn't care about the situation that they're in. He's like having a great time with his mom. Jimmy's kind of like gaming it a little bit. Like he's sort of like aware of what's happening, but like also using it to his advantage. And then Henry's just super nervous. He's freaking out. You have a note yeah, I wanted to ask you something, Ben. I wanted your academic take on the um, on the painting, <laughs> the old man painting when Pesci's like, look he's at this thinking, guy. what the fuck looking you that way. me? Dog's looking that way. <laughs> I like this dog is going left. This dog is going right. What does it mean, Ben? Why is Tommy analyzing art in the middle of this scene? What's going on here? What's what? the subtext? Catherine Scorsese is so fucking good in this movie as Tommy's mom. And I love this scene so much, and I love the dog painting so much, I want to hang it on my fucking wall. But what does it mean, Ben? What's the academic read? It means That's what I want. I want you to justify. Henry is divided between two paths that he could take. <laughs> he could go one way. He could go Ooh, the other. But I like actually, it. he's trapped on a boat going in a different direction altogether, whose course he cannot fix. Mm, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all I wanted. So then they they got to dig him up because there's going to be construction a few months later. It's great. And it kind of just naturally bleeds into the next section of the movie, which is Janice, his, his Gumar, and him dealing with his family drama. Right? Yeah. We get all these uh, um, great scenes sort of deepening the, the relationship between Henry and Karen. And we start to see how abusive he is towards her, which, you know, again, like isn't addressed in the voiceover. It's another sort of one of those scenes of irony where uh, uh, we have that really heartbreaking scene where she attempts to kill him. And uh, uh, um, then, you know, he, he disarms her and, and she's and beats her and she's screaming how sorry she is. That scene is harsh. That is a harsh scene. And uh, we get the scene with Polly and Jimmy going over to uh, uh, Henry when he's staying with his girlfriend and, and telling him he's got to go back to Karen. It's just, this sequence here is really fleshing out, uh, again, sort of like the collateral damage that these people do uh, in, in their selfishness. Right. 
Yeah. It's almost funny that like Henry's kids don't factor into any of this. Like they're just kind of there. Yeah. Watching shit go down. But like you never even learn their names. They don't say nothing about them being born. They're barely mentioned at all during the discussions of uh, witness protection. Yep. They're like, lives are being completely abandoned. Nobody cares. Yeah. But there's some shots of them, like, watching Henry and Karen, like, flipping the fuck out. I remember distinctly, like, when they're fighting, there's shots of the kids looking on in horror. He, I like that he kind of comes back to those kids in The Irishman. With, uh... uh... He does, yeah. It's funny, though, because, like, again, they don't have a lot of lines. Right? Like, Anna Paquin has, like, three... Famously only has, like, three lines in that movie. But they are three very, very impactful lines. Yeah, but she still only has three lines. <laughs> like, fuck. She has no fucking character development. All right, but almost immediately after Henry and Karen reconcile, he winds up in prison. Yeah, and that's a great sequence in and of itself. He's cooking in prison. Can we talk about how good the food always looks in this movie? God, I want to eat all the food in this movie. It's a yummy movie. What's your favorite uh, What's your favorite spread in the movie? I mean, it's hard to compete with the razor-shaved garlic that melts yeah, in your mouth. But I like obviously. it. In a, there's a barbecue scene at Polly's Backyard earlier where there's just like these coils of sausage grilling. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I just want to eat that sausage. Yeah, that does look good. But yeah, that whole revelation of like even in prison they're are treated with the utmost respect and get to do whatever they want. You're kind of like, Oh wow, this is pretty great. Like even when things are bad, they seem okay. And it's just more drawing you into the allure of the whole lifestyle. And yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about prison? Uh, no. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I do. I do. I'm looking at the notes now. I will say this in the prison section. My favorite line of the movie is in there. When, when the guy who is cooking the steaks is asking everyone's um, temperature and someone says medium rare. And he's like, Oh, medium rare an aristic, an aristocrat, medium rare. Oh, an aristocrat. An aristocrat. So... You are in the Disney animated film Aristocats. <laughs> it's so funny when that guy says that line. It's just great. So, and that's definitely an ad lib. Yeah. But what just a great one too though cuz it says again so much about the characters and the way that they treat each other. It just one throwaway line from a character who we barely met and we'll never see again. Yep. And also the scene with another Karen freakout scene when she's in the uh big visitation room and has to she starts taking out the baguettes and stuff. So good. So <laughs> desperate and crazy. And she's like taking sausages out of her coat. So me. I always love that that shot where they enter the prison starts with a dude just getting a blowjob <laughs> yeah that's right it's so fucked up and these kids are walking that, by it and and there's like that's just what they have to do do you think that they had different extras for all these scenes or if you look closely is it all the same well extras a lot of the extras in a lot of the the, the mob scenes are like actual mobsters right a famous thing about the making of the movie is that like you like you had to kind of let them do whatever they wanted because they were fucking real, real criminals. Yeah. I, I just wonder, like, if you look closely, like, are the same dudes in the Copacabana, like, also <laughs> prisoners in the um, in the big visitation room? I bet the I mobsters aren't Mystery. being prisoners. I bet they're not saying yes to that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. The other thing to note about the prison sequence is, is when we introduce the idea that Henry has begun dealing and taking drugs. Yes, that's right. I really enjoy the fact that, like, it just sort of happens. 
kind of naturally in this movie. There's not like a big pivotal moment of decision where it's like, I'm going to deal drugs now to make it in the clink. It's just like, no, that's just sort of how it was. Like, I dealt some drugs in prison and like it just kind of spiraled. They don't make a big fuss out of it. It's it's it one of my happens. favorite um, explications or or, or, or or ways to reveal that you have an untrustworthy narrator. You know, everyone always talks about something like Usual Suspects where we are told overtly the narrator who told us this movie was a liar. But what we see in this movie is sort of a lie of omission where the movie shows us that Henry has started taking and dealing drugs before the voiceover acknowledges it. And it makes mm. us suddenly question like, what else are you withholding? How are you trying right. to recolor this to make yourself look better? Totally, totally. He all of a sudden becomes a fucking cokehead, and he's fucking nuts. <laughs> Such a 360. I read stuff that like he would stay up for days and days and days so that he'd look it, crazy, like totally strung out. And he really does. It's really I mean, convincing. During that final day of freedom sequence, both he. And Lorraine Bracco looks so terrible. Yeah, for sure. Which then brings back to the wives scene where she's talking about how terrible they look. Yeah. What kind of, this is when the movie kind of, it, it goes back to kind of the episodic, like prison's kind of a hill. And then it goes back into a valley of like, then this random thing happens and this happens and this happens. The biggest one being spider. Spider. Michael Imperioli as two scene performance. Great. Yeah. That's it's like that uh, when Nancy was talking about the roles she wished she'd gotten. Like, how great would it be to just get that two scener in a Scorsese movie? That here's awesome. Why? Here's another thing that makes uh, um, Sarone uh, underrated is that he looks so much like Imperioli that like you you get without anyone ever having to hammer it home that like this kid would have been another Henry Hill, but for Tommy's complete psychopathy. I don't know, man. I disagree with that. I think Spider was a fucking idiot compared to Henry Hill. He did not know how to how to work in that system. He wasn't fast. He didn't get the drinks fast enough, so he's already set himself up to get fucked with. Yeah, and but then, Tommy fucks with people even if they don't deserve it. We've seen it that doesn't time matter, again. dude. You can see Henry was a go getter. Henry knew how to fucking play the game. He knew how to get all the guys to like him. He knew everyone in the room, and you can tell Spider. No one wants to be in the same room as Spider. Spider fucking sucks. He's no personality. <laughs> he's shuffling around. He's, he's, he's terrible. Fucking shot leg. What? His leg was shot. What do you mean shuffling around? Before he gets shot, he's like, he's like, what did you say? Oh, what? I thought you said you're all right, Spider. What? Like Henry would have never done that. Henry would have shut the fuck up and not said a fucking word. I I am saying. on Spider's side in this sequence. Tommy is just fucking with him. I mean, obviously, Spider's a victim, but he's also, like, he's an Omega in a world of alphas. So, like, he should not have been tending bar So you're bar saying all those beta thing. cucks deserve what they get, huh? Well, I'm just saying that he sh he probably shouldn't have told Tommy to go fuck himself. I think you're really, uh, um, you're really, you're really putting your psychopath detector to the test in this movie. Dude, you're telling me that Spider has the same personality is henry hill no, and he could have been saying, henry hill i'm not no, no i'm way. not saying that i'm but i'm saying that there is a distinct that is what you said a no. few seconds ago what, you said what? oh if not for the tommy he would have been another henry hill right he's no. another young guy who's gotten <laughs> caught up in this system and i believe there's an absolutely intentional thing happening here with how much he looks like sarone 
where Scorsese is saying, you know, Henry got lucky. And yeah, maybe part of it was skill, but he could have been chewed up by the system and spat out like so many people are. Yeah, I suppose. But I also think Imperioli is fucking ugly and Henry Hill is, is, is handsome. <laughs> Young Henry Hill is handsome. And they cast it in a way that you understand why fucking Tommy shot Spider. I'm sorry, Ben. It's just the way it is. It's just the that's the that's life. That's life. You're right. He absolutely deserved it. He absolutely deserved everything he got. Sure. You can put words in my mouth if you want, but it's undeniable. Um Also, I want to have have another fun fact. Sopranos and Goodfellas share 28 cast members, which is crazy. I read a a really great oral history of the making of this movie in GQ, and they brought David Chase in, even though he has nothing to do with Goodfellas, just because Sopranos is owes so much to it. Yeah. Um, It's crazy how many actors there are. And, And also how much Sopranos owes to it. I feel like there would definitely be no Sopranos if it wasn't for Goodfellas. But with that said, a thought that I had while watching this movie is like, why are we even bothering with like multi-season television shows when this movie exists? You can do it in two and a half hours. Yeah. This movie is seven seasons. You just have to be one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> it's it's nuts. Like I, I, I was like almost angry. <laughs> at all the TV shows that I've watched in my life. And I was like, you're telling me they could have done Breaking Bad in two and a half hours? Fuck! <laughs> like, it's, on, it's so Should great. we just quickly mention uh, Debbie Mazar as Sandy, Henry's other mistress, who then helps him with his drug trade? Yeah, sort of the magic of this movie is that Sandy just kind of is able to just wander in. And like you just kind of implicitly understand her deal. Like she's like the newer, sexier model of the last one. Here's why I think it works. When they are touring Janice's apartment and Henry and Janice get all worked up on the bed and he steps off the bed and he locks eyes with Sandy and she trips such an iconic moment. It immediately identifies her as an important character and as their sexual dynamic being a really important element of her character. Yeah. And that trip was an accident. She tripped over the over the dolly track and scorsese said wait do that again we're keeping that in the movie perfect he is such a master at like preparation and then improvisation about finding those magic lightning in a bottle moments that absolutely make or break a movie and exploiting them to their fullest yeah i haven't even noticed i gotta watch that again i didn't even notice that so i don't know if the take in it is one where she actually tripped but during some of the rehearsals or during one of the takes she did and that's what created that moment so then we get the lufthansa heist which is like it's so funny that the lufthansa heist is like such a big part of this movie because like growing up watching this movie as like a teenager i never understood the fucking lufthansa heist because they don't show it they don't bother showing the heist they just show the prepping and the aftermath which is kind of funny they only show henry reacting to it in the shower he's listening to the radio and it's like oh fuck they did it and it's just it's so funny that like another movie would have taken 20 minutes to do this whole heist. And like, that's not what's important in this movie. Um, what's important is that everyone involved in the heist ends up getting killed. And that we realize it's <laughs> Jimmy that's doing it. Yes. So my theory is that Jimmy fully takes over the movie during the frosty, the snowman 
scene in the bar. Now Jimmy is the one who's dictating what else is going to happen in this movie. Right. He's like yelling at people. He he takes the lady's coat off in the bar. <laughs> He's like, get that coat off. And he takes it off of her. It's like, what is he going to do? Like put it in the back room at the bar. But Jimmy is fully taken over this movie at this point. And the bodies start piling up. You get the next big musical transition with Layla. Yeah, so good. Now things are very bad. Samuel Jackson is introduced and then killed off. Brutal murder. That back of the headshot is is fucked. You were talking about the Godfather connection. This is the part of the movie that always makes me think of the Godfather because that movie climaxes with, you know, a montage of death. Yeah. They're, and, they're, and they feel sort of similar to the montages where it's like all these people that we've seen that have been sort of peripheral players are now just being taken off the board. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this movie owes a lot to the Godfather, I think, just because of the scope. And I don't know. I can't. I was trying to think of like other epic crime movies that came before this and the Godfather. And like other than Scarface, I couldn't think of a lot like i feel like they were usually like public enemy and like all the warner brothers gangster films they're smaller than these but just as an extension of the way movies were made back then yeah like not years spanning right like the closest thing i could think of was like a couple of them are are like because i think like i think uh both scarf like not scarface in the 80s but like in the the 40s scarface and public enemy uh both like are like the entire story of like these classic gangsters lives but do they take place over like I guess they do. They would. But yeah. I don't know. I was I was thinking more about like the scope of like something like Citizen Kane or something where like you <laughs> sure. really see like the world change around the characters and like get they get older and stuff like that. And I feel like this movie does that really well and like Good uh, Godfather does that really really well. And I was just trying to think of other movies sort of like that. Um cuz we've seen it a million times since Goodfellas. This right. is like now the template for these kind of things. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we're going to talk about this at the end, but this movie and Godfather are really like the celebrations of like the 20th century in the movie form. Like you're really going through the whole fucking thing with these two movies. So we can talk about that a little bit later. Let's let's start speed rounding this a little bit. Tommy dies. He thinks he's getting made. He gets killed. And he cries about it. Oh, no. So good. When he gets shot. I love that. And then you got your last day. Which is just a phenomenal sequence. I wanted to shout out Kevin Corgan as Michael, Henry's brother. Um, He was also in Exorcist 3 the same year. He played an altar boy. Not sure where or when he shows up. (laughs) Uh, He's actually had a a surprisingly robust career. I just wanted to mention one of my personal favorites. He plays a theater professor in Community. And he is the best part of one of the best episodes. uh, a, A conspiracy theory episode where he is pretending to be a fake professor. And it's really good. I didn't realize that was him until I was reading IMDb. And then I was like, oh shit. Nice, nice. Kevin Corrigan. Yeah, that's kind of iconic that he's like this this random character that you see at the beginning of the movie too, in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And he's just always kind of there. I love that. Uh, it just speaks to like the, um, the world building in this movie that's so deep. Henry's got a little brother with, with in a wheelchair. And it's just kind of there peripherally. It didn't have to be. And he never mentions it. And he never has like any particular sympathy for his brother. He mentions it once. He says, my father hated that my brother, my little brother was in a wheelchair. But yeah, it's, it's just kind of there. And it's just one of 
thousands of things in this movie that's just a cool little detail that helps you enjoy it a little bit more. This sequence really crystallizes my take on the movie, so I'm going to spell it out now. All right, let's hear This it. movie is about a virus. Mm. In the movie, there is this defect in human nature. You could call it greed or immorality or recklessness or criminality or selfishness, which I think it's, it's selfishness is like the closest, and it infects you. And then you start to spread it to the people around you mm. until everyone in your life is infected by it or harmed by it. I agree. So we've got Henry who early on catches it from Polly because he's too close to them. They're just across the street. He sees them every day. He gets caught by their greed, infected with their greed. And then throughout the film, he spreads it to everyone else he gets in contact with. In this sequence, they do this thing where they go to Karen's mom's house to hide guns. And the only other time that we've seen Karen's mom is when she was screaming about how she did not want Karen with Henry. And somehow in the period of time between that sequence and this sequence, she has been overpowered by his infection. Mm. Yeah, totally. Like she, she's powerless against him now. And Karen herself is the ultimate example, who when we first meet her is self-possessed and self-aware and maybe is slightly perverse, like she kind of likes how dangerous Henry is. But by the time we get to this sequence, she is a diseased wreck. Yeah, she's totally in on all his schemes. She's like doing the coke with him. She's freaking out with him. <laughs> I love that shot of them at the strip mall looking for the helicopter. They look so <laughs> When they're crazy. coming out of the store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. It's so good. That's that's how I always felt like that's the arc of this movie. I like that idea. That's cool. That, that they're all infected with the mafia virus. <laughs> um so then he gets pinched there's sort of like some fallout after he gets pinched like it's not the end it's not like he goes i for some reason i always think like oh he gets pinched and then he rats on everyone but there is this weird in between where like he's out of jail and he needs to get his shit together and he goes to Polly. Yeah. He goes to Jimmy. Yeah, he goes to all his friends and they all basically can't do shit for him. Karen and Jimmy scene one of my favorite scenes. So good. Where now Jimmy, you really, he's really fucking scary. And you don't and know just, what the deal it's, is. De Niro at the height of his powers, just being like, Sofa there, it's around the corner. And you're like, get the fuck out of there. That man's going to kill you. Yeah. Or is he? It's kind of a question. Maybe he was just going to give her like some coats. That's the, that's the crazy thing is like, you don't know. That's what makes it even scarier is that he is, could have, for all we know, he could have just been really trying to give her some coats because she's down on her luck. Also, the scene when Henry gets home and he thinks he can sell off the coke that was hidden, and Karen's like, "I flushed it," and like they just have a total meltdown. And, and him again, like just like blaming her and abusing her for his failings. They definitely would have found it. It was like hidden behind the TV. Like there was like forty. D agents. They would have found the coke. <laughs> I'm sorry, Henry, but you're full of shit. And then they go to talk to the FBI and it's his only way out. And we're in the final stretch of the movie. This scene when they go to talk to the prosecutor about entering witness protection is so interesting to me. The prosecutor is played by a man named Ed McDonald, who was the actual prosecutor who put Henry Hill into witness protection and you can tell he's slightly stiff he doesn't feel like an actor he feels like a real lawyer yeah being a competent lawyer 
And he is such a stark contrast to Leota and Brocco on the couch, looking strung out and acting so over the top. It really, for me, coalesces Karen's earlier observation where she talks about how like being within the mob lifestyle kind of normalizes all these absolutely absurd things. And you got no, you, you had the same thing happen to you where like the way that they behaved started to seem almost normal until you saw an actual real person behaving normally. And then you're like, who the fuck are these aliens sitting on this couch? Yeah. They do look totally whacked in that setting and next to that guy. And they don't feel like they, they feel like they are actors delivering a performance. They are the ones that feel fake, not him, but in a very useful way where it's like they feel fake because their life is so far removed from what a normal life should be like. For sure. For sure. And then you get that final stretch where he, he rats on everyone and he breaks the fourth wall with his VO, which is super cool. And then he has to live the rest of his life like a schnook. And Tommy shoots at the camera. Tommy shoots at the camera, which is sort of a little weird avant-garde ending there. I don't know. It's like a reference to The Great Train Robbery, I yeah, guess. Yeah, a, a deliberate homage to Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery. Uh, but I also, uh, you clued me into this, uh, a, a hot take from the comedian Bill Burr, where it's like Tommy's always going to be coming after him. He's always going to have to look over his shoulder. And I tend to agree with that take because of where he places it. Ray's looking out into the distance we don't know what he's looking at cut bang 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 cut back to ray still looking out Mm, and it really is almost like shot reverse shot that's what he sees is somebody out there with a gun and that's why he has to live his life as a schnook because if he doesn't the other option is death totally do you think like every crime movie has to end either with the person dead or the person in this situation like they never just end in a random moment like they're always it always just has to be like either they get shot like in the departed or they're like fucked like spoiler for the shield the shield uh you know they're just like in domestic hell basically the one that kind of bucks it even though it's i mean it the movie is is basically goodfellas 2.0 is wolf of wall street because he's really oh, not true. that much worse off at the end of Wolf of Wall Street than he was at any yeah, other point. Yeah, he totally gets away with it in Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Which is sort of the point of that movie. Yeah, that's true. I totally forgot about Wolf. Um, okay, cool. Good to know. Scorsese, always innovating. So I have a quick question for the final reviews. Where does this one sit in the pantheon of like great mob movies? Is it number one? For me, it's number three. Number three. What are number ones and twos? Godfather one and two. Okay, nice. I I can get behind that. I think in terms of just pure watchability, this is number one. It's sure. so watchable. Godfather's like, that's like a big meal that you're gonna be eating. Though Godfather one is also very watchable. Godfather two is like, all right, I need to get ready for this. I gotta tuck in my bib here. Here we go. But even Godfather one is like. You know, it's a little more formal. Yeah. It's a little more. I think for stiff. me, it just it speaks to my aesthetics slightly more. Like this is almost a little too hyperkinetic for me, and I kind of gotcha. like the stateliness of Godfather. Yeah, 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 stately for sure. Um, How about you? Are there any others that even warrant mentioning? I don't I, know. In the top three, um, I mean, there have been plenty of tremendous crime films. Scorsese has made several more good ones, including The Departed and Casino and Irishman, but. Like, we are talking about 
the upper upper echelons the one percent of the one percent of the one percent right like you have to have a transcendent work to even be mentioned in the same conversation what but wait what about Gotti? (laughs) because Gotti came onto the scene recently so maybe its legacy hasn't been fully Gotti was good but what about black sunday get that whitey bulger action in there or black monday was it black sunday that movie sucked (laughs) i hated that movie so much I do have to watch Gotti. I feel like I'd probably enjoy it. Um, <laughs> my other theory, fan theory, that I wanted to put out to the public is that Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, and The Irishman, four movies, four of Scorsese's like mob movies. I don't count Departed because that's yeah. Irish. These are all Italian What about like movies. Raging Bull, which has mob connections? No, no, that doesn't count. That That's not a mob movie. Those four movies together give you a portrait of the entire mob hierarchy. So Mean Streets is like the kids, the young guys, the the starting the, the starting guys. Then Goodfellas is more like the managers, but like still in like kind of a grimy street level. Then Casino is like the kind of bigger time mobsters that like get to run huge operations like out in the West. Like they're a little bit more legit seeming. And then finally, Irishman, to cap it off, is, like, literally, like, Jimmy Hoffa (laughs) and, like, the leaders of the American mafia. And, like, the main character of the Irishman is, like, the dude that killed Jimmy Hoffa, like, the bestest (laughs) assassin ever. So I think that he's kind of, over his whole career, from beginning to what, sadly, but most likely is close to the end is like this mafioso epic of all the different degrees of the levels of mobster life. So that's my theory and I'm sticking to it no matter what you say. <laughs> no, I, I like it. It really is like you get, he's, he's come at it from every angle. Yeah. So the book has been written. I would like to see him do a historically set organized crime film, like in like the golden age of organized crime prohibition era. I'd be really interested to see. What yeah, I guess he that. never did because that. I think that if he brought his modern energy to a film like that, it would it would be an opportunity to kind of open up the way that we see those kinds of movies. He did do the pilot for Boardwalk Empire. Good point. Good so point. That's that's sort, sort of, of exactly his, what I'm talking about. Jam. That show kind of wasn't great. Sadly, <laughs> it was like a little too much. It never got where it needed to be. Unfortunately. It was a little too HBO-y. Like, yeah. it never felt real. It was always too much. But that's for our TV season <laughs> to talk about. So let's get more into the, the technicals of the legacy. Legacy here. here. Box office. Budget of this film was $25 million. A pretty big budget. Scorsese's most expensive to date. Damn. Supposedly a significant portion of that budget went to clearing the music rights. I'm sure. Surprised there wasn't like Beatles music in here. Yeah, there's like it's it was at the time the most expensive soundtrack uh, of any movie ever. I wonder if this movie helped kind of move along. There was kind of a golden age for like movie soundtrack available now, and like I know that that was a thing in the '60s and like '70s with like Easy Rider and shit. But like, I feel like every movie had a soundtrack for a long. We time. talked about it in Pretty Woman, right? Like that had like a like a best-selling soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder if this had a lot to do with that but maybe not i don't know and ghost like unchained melody was was a big uh, uh you know hit because of the movie like it's always there's always been the symbiotic relationship 
between the two industries. Mm, for sure. The movie had a very, very tumultuous release. It tested horribly with test audiences, uh, and Scorsese had to fight really hard to get an R rating. Like, he was shaving frames off of the scenes of violence to get it down into an R. Which I can't believe that, unless it was way more violent than we see in the movie. Like, really, this is rated X or whatever? It wasn't way more violent. Like, literally, he talks about, like, nothing was cut out of the movie. He would just remove frames of gore and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, the movie is violent, but there are definitely more violent movies that didn't have to do that. Yeah, for sure. I feel like it's just, you know, the better filmmaker you are, the tougher they are on you with that kind of thing. They do the same thing with sex scenes, too, though, where it's like the more intimate and honest the sex scene is, the more likely it's going to get you an R rating, even if you don't have nudity. Mm. Right, 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 right. For sure. So the movie opens September 19th to $6.4 million. A A bad opening. But... It goes on to gross $46.8 million domestically. It had good word of mouth. It was a strong critical success, and it winds up a solid hit. It is the 25th highest grossing film of the year domestically. And with that, the ranking game is dead. The ranking game is no more. <laughs> you killed it. I'll bring you it whacked back it. for the top 10. All right. For movies in the top 10. I'm going to be like De Niro with the phone. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. There's, we had a problem. He's gone. Ranking game's gone. Fuck! <laughs> uh, Oscars and other awards. The movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Editing, Adapted Screenplay, Actress, and it wins Best Supporting Actor for Joe Pesci. Famously, one of the shortest acceptance speeches at the Oscars of all time. He, he didn't have a speech prepared, so he just walked up and said, it's an honor, thank you. It's like five words, which is awesome. When I win my Oscar, I've got my one-word speech ready to go, just so you know. Well, what's that? I don't actually have it ready, but I'm going to beat Pesci. That's my goal. (laughs) I love the short speech in and out. We did it, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Free Martha Stewart. I don't know. Uh... (laughs) She's probably in the audience. (laughs) It won numerous BAFTAs. It basically won all of the critics awards. Like I literally tried to find a critic award. It didn't win that year and I couldn't find one. It won the Silver Lion and the Audience Award at Venice. A, a critical sensation, as well it should be. No doubt. So let's talk about some 90s themes. 90s themes. Crime. Nat, there's crime in this movie. Crimes are committed. But it's much more personal than most of the crime we see. It's not just random carjackings and, and so muggings. I wanted to talk about this and, and bring it down a little more seriously. Because crime is a good shorthand. But when I say crime, I don't just mean that crimes happen. I'm talking about crime as being pervasive, unavoidable, an existential threat to American society. In the wake of the Cold War, crime has replaced the Soviets as the thing most likely to destroy America. Mm. Unsurprisingly, this is probably the most profound take on that idea of any of the movies that we've watched. Because in this movie, it's not so much that crime is a threat to American society and the crime depicted as a threat, as it is like the necessary end result of American society. Oh, interesting. Like Henry Hill and the mafia were inevitable. Right. We spawn the things that destroy us just like Hill does to himself. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, and it's also funny to like, think about it in conjunction with the Godfather, which like always kind of has that delineation between like the old good crime and like the new (laughs) gross crime. And this movie kind of does the same thing. 
Yeah. But like in this movie, it's a little bit more like, oh, it's just because we're not seeing as much of the gross parts of it in the earlier days. But it's funny how a lot of movies do that. Like the rise and fall. Do you think this whole like uh, uh, drugs are the are are what the bad criminals do is like born out of the changing moral standards and the war on drugs where it's like it's like sort of a new haze code where like the movies themselves are like self-regulating and being like, well, drugs are the big bad. So as long as we keep drugs, the big bad will be OK in across the country as far as like morality goes. It could be, but I also think there's a lot of truth to it because like Henry says in the movie, like these rackets and whatever were like providing power to like immigrant communities basically that couldn't go to the police. And obviously there's like a lot of bad shit in there, but I think that once drugs get involved, it's like the rackets are just creating poison that they sell to the communities that then also destroy the communities. Like... Except to go all the way back to the Bamboo Lounge sequence, they were always destroying the communities. For sure. Now they're just doing it in, in a different way. Yeah, that's totally true. It's just not as, like, addictive. Like, it's not just right. a literal product that, like, addicts people to it and makes them sick. I think it's like a, a, the, the older ones are like, hey, man, you know, destroying somebody's life through drugs doesn't take skill. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to have personality. All you, you got to do is sell them on this one trust. product and then they'll do all the work for themselves. Get good, noobs. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and I don't know. It's it's also just been said that like drug problems are like the sign of like a sick society in general that needs drugs to like escape whatever the fuck else is going on. But how much of that is like racist rhetoric born out of the war on drugs? I don't know. It's tough. Like we live in it right now. So it's, it's tough to like, look at it with an objective eye. Certainly giving, given the, the personal context, I can understand why Scorsese would make a movie where drugs are the line too far. Yeah. But it's also in Godfather. It's ev- it's everywhere. It's a guy. It's true. Yeah. I, I wanted to add that a Hill is another passive protagonist. That's right. He doesn't do a lot. He's mostly an observer. Uh, you know, or an intermediary, like he's never the one taking action in this movie. Yeah, it's true. It's quite the thread you got there. I was sort of trying to like disprove your theory as a thought experiment. Like I was thinking about like other movies, like some of the great movies and like, oh, maybe every movie just has a past protagonist. Maybe that's how movies work, but not really. Like <laughs> look at the Godfather, like Michael does shit. <laughs> His whole thing is that like at the middle of the movie, he's like, no, I am going to be the person who does things right. in this movie. Exactly. Scarface. Like I was, I was mostly looking at like other crime movies. Cause that's like the lens you're going to look at this or Scarface. Scarface does a lot. He, <laughs> he gets a lot of stuff done. So yeah, I'll keep thinking about it, but I, I do think you are onto something there that a lot of these 1990 movies for whatever reason have these protagonists where like sh- things happen to them. They don't do a lot of things. And then the last one is the reflecting on the century prior, which we've seen a lot. And this is like the ultimate example of that. We're literally going through 30 years of the century prior and the most radical change in that century, at least in living memory at the time that this movie was made. Because there's something to be said between like the difference between like 1900 and 1930. But like the difference between 1955 and 1985 is pretty culturally radical. Um, so we're really seeing Definitely. that progression. 
in this movie. And yeah, you take this with The Godfather 1 and 2 and you get the whole century, basically. <laughs> you get the beginning, the middle, and the end. All immigrants arriving off the boat in 1900, their children taking over after World War II, and then their children's children uh, after Vietnam. Yeah, it's, it's crazy shit, man. I love it. All right, should we get out of here? Yeah, we should. I think we're just about the same length of the movie at this point. <laughs> so we That's pretty good. We definitely That's pretty good. should get out of here. Um, but... If you haven't seen Goodfellas, you should go watch it. And if you have seen it, you should go watch it again. Highly recommended. We usually say at the end, like, do we recommend this movie? Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly candid, I felt like I almost didn't have to rewatch this movie. And then I sat down to watch it. And fuck, I'm so glad I did because I love this movie. It's so good. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I'll put a little tease here. Uh, we're going to do a, a top 10 episode, a, a, a 1990s award episode at the end of the season. Ooh. And uh, I've got a little anecdote about Goodfellas for that episode. So you stay tuned. All right. Nice. So let's plug our peeps and then we'll get the fuck out of here. Go to the club. Yeah. <laughs> Go see uh, Jimmy two times and Frankie meatloaf. I'm going to record the podcast, report the podcast. Follow us on social media at BTTMPod on Instagram and Twitter, BTTMPod at gmail.com. Send us an email. Please, Hell yeah. somebody send me a fucking email. Yeah, <laughs> that was too intense. Send him an email. Thanks to Andy Gagnon for our music. Thanks to Jackie Saltzman for our artwork. Yeah, that beautiful new logo. Love it, Sweet. baby. Sweet. Cool stuff. That's it, right? That is it. That was good, fellas. Hot damn. I got to go eat something. I'm starving. <laughs> for Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. And this is Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. Ben, how do you usually get your steak? Like what kind? All right, how do you usually get your burger? Uh, bloody. Oh, bloody! An aristocrat. I failed. I was such a bad seed partner for you in that. Should we just talk about the co coca the co Should we just talk about the uh coca the, Oh my fuck me